Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jessica Erickson, professor of law at the University of Richmond. We'll be discussing her new article, Automating Settlements in Corporate Litigation, which is forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Jessica, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much. Jessica, before we jump into the main thrust of the article, you open the paper with a problem, which is that uh, Rule 23, uh, the Architects of Rule 23, the, the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure related to class actions, really designed that rule to be an opt-in versus an opt-out. But you observe that securities class actions in practice have sort of turned that around. Could you discuss uh, what the motivation between opt-out versus opt-in is and why that has gotten mixed in the case of securities class actions? Sure, sure. So essentially, when a jurisdiction or a country is drafting class action rules, it has a big decision to make. It can decide to make class actions opt-in or opt-out. And just a word about the difference there. In an opt-in class action, you're not a member of the class unless you take affirmative steps to opt-in, right? So you actually have to decide to join a class action. In an opt-out class action, you are. If you fit the definition of a class, you are a member of the class, even if you don't know it. And you can opt out of the class action if you want to, but do nothing and you're a member of the class. And so essentially rules drafters have a choice. Do we want these to be opt-in class actions or opt-out class actions? In the United States, in federal court, our norm is opt-out. In other words, do nothing, you're a member of the class. You can always opt out, but we assume you start off as a member of the class. And I'll just say that in some ways is an unusual decision. Most jurisdictions around the world don't have opt-out class actions. We are one of the only jurisdictions that does, and certainly we're one of the only jurisdictions that has lots and lots of class actions that are opt-out lawsuits. So we we stand alone or nearly alone in that way, and it's not an accident. And here I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to imply that in the 1960s when Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure was being drafted, that they had lengthy debates about this, because I think if you go back to the records there, it's clear that the drafters of Rule 23 had no idea just how big class actions would become. You know, they, they certainly didn't fully understand the system that they were creating. That said, there were conversations about whether our default rule should be opt-in or opt-out, and they made a decision to have opt-out class actions. And that decision was supposed to protect small claim holders. The idea is that if you were injured, but you don't have a large claim, you probably won't take action to actually opt into the litigation, right? You just don't have enough of a financial interest. And therefore, with an opt-in regime, where you actually have to opt in to get anything, um, we probably wouldn't see, we wouldn't see most rights vindicated. And so the drafters of the federal rules said, no, we want a system where everybody's rights are vindicated in these lawsuits. Even those people, as I think the rules say something like, even those small people with small claims. Right? So the Rule 23 had that design in mind from the very beginning. So there's a, that paternalistic almost motivation behind Rule 23. 
does that break down in the case of securities class actions and, and settlements? Yeah. So what I would say is, ironically, it breaks down in almost all class actions. So we start with these very noble goals that people are members of the class, even if they don't know about the lawsuit, that we're going to vindicate their rights, even if they don't have a large financial stake in the litigation. But what ends up happening is that that's, that's a decision, by the way, but the opt-in part is at the front of the litigation. At the end of the litigation, we require people to opt in, regardless of whether it's an opt-in or an opt-out lawsuit in theory. Almost all class actions at the end of the day become opt-in. And that's because to actually get your share of the settlement money, you have to, in almost all cases, file a claim with the court or with the settlement administrator identifying yourself saying, I'm a member of this class, I'm entitled to a portion of the settlement, and here I can prove it. And that's, you know, so it's certainly we see that in securities class actions. So about half of securities class actions settle. The other half are dismissed one way or the other. Um, but about half settle. They settle for a lot of money. And what happens is, is that after the parties agree on how much money the settlement will be, there's a fairly complicated claims administration process where right now what happens is that there is a company hired to administer the settlement. What that basically means is get the settlement to the injured shareholders. And they go through this whole process to try to identify who was injured by the company's alleged fraud. So, for example, they'll post notices on social media saying, you know, if you owned, I don't know, XYZ company shares during the class period, you might be entitled to money. Here's the claims form. They send out claims forms to banks and brokers so that if I hold, if I have a stock account through Charles Schwab, Charles Schwab will receive claims forms that then they're supposed to pass along to me. So I might get one in the mail that then I have to fill out. And what happens through that system where essentially I haven't known about necessarily this litigation all the way through and then at the end, I'm supposed to opt in, what happens is that most shareholders just don't. Partially because they may never receive that claims form. They may not see it on social media. Their broker or bank may not send it to them. Um, or because even if they do get the claims form, they just don't bother to turn it in. And that may sound pejorative. Why wouldn't you fill in a form? But what happens is when you get this form in the mail, it looks a lot like a tax form. Frankly, it's, an, it's a lengthy form. It's going to ask for a lot of information. It's going to require a lot of supporting documentation. So you're going to have to detail exactly when you bought and sold the securities at issue, the dates, the price you paid. You need to back all of that up with brokerage statements or bank statements to prove that. And a lot of people just may not be able to track those down. They may not have easy access to them. I mean, for a lot of people, they may think, is it worth my time, especially when when you receive the claims form in the mail, you have no idea how much money you're entitled to. Am I going to go through all this work and then get a $5 check in the mail? Or am I going to go through all this work and get a $10,000 check in the mail or a $20,000 check in the mail? Most people just don't know. And I think people assume they, don't, they won't get very much. Um, and, and I will just say this isn't pure speculation. There is a fabulous study. Um, from about 10 years ago that Jim Cox and Randall Thomas did. It was published in the Stanford Law Review, and it showed that even the largest institutional investors, so these are large institutions, Vanguard, those types, 
that have lots of money at stake in these lawsuits, even those large institutions only filed claims about a third of the time. So two-thirds of the time, even those institutions didn't bother to file claims. So clearly, we have set up hurdles that most shareholders just aren't willing to jump through. So we have this dynamic where shareholders are entitled to some recovery from these class actions, but for whatever reason, they're not getting it. Um, It sounds like there might be a lack of uh, incentive in some cases, even in the case of some large institutional holders. What is the thing that's kind of driving this problem? Why do we have this system that requires shareholders to jump through these potentially onerous hoops? Is there a conflict in the system or in the ecosystem that is driving it, for example, if claims aren't made by shareholders, somebody else gets to keep the amounts or other conflicts that might explain why we have this system that presents this problem? So I think there are a lot of conflicts of interest in this system, and I can talk about those later. But I'll say, frankly, that I don't think those conflicts are what's driving the current problems. I think this whole cumbersome system of claims administration and securities class actions happen not out of any kind of nefarious intent, but rather because courts didn't think they had another way of identifying the class members. I mean, essentially, in order to distribute the settlement money, we need to know who the class members are. And we not only need to know who they are, but we need to know how much money they're entitled to, which turns on when they bought the shares at issue, when they might have sold them, what price they paid, right? And none of that information is easily accessible, right? We don't, companies, for example, do not have records of who buys and sells shares of their stock, right? Companies don't have access to that information, Um, nor is there any big database out there, at least not yet, that has information on securities purchases. So what's basically happened is that because claims administrators don't otherwise have a way, so they think, to access this data to identify class members, we essentially require class members to identify themselves. So I think it's a data gap that's been driving this problem, not any malicious intent. So it's almost like the data gap has effectively transformed the system into an opt-in because uh, you have to uh, step forward and, and say that I have this claim versus we can imagine if Say there's a class action against Netflix uh, that involves customers. Netflix has a complete list of its customers and those who might be affected by whatever the issue is, and issuers don't have that same luxury. Have there been any efforts to address this problem or to, to mitigate it? And how have those worked out, if, if there have been? Yeah. So when Jim Cox and Randall Thomas published their study, it did. I mean, it got a lot of attention. And there were some changes in the market. So once everybody realized, gee, the settlement administration process that we have largely been ignoring, turns out it isn't working very well, some things changed. The biggest thing that changed is that we now have an industry of middlemen, what are called third-party filers, that work with institutional investors. And what they do is they basically say to institutional investors, you tell us when you are buying and selling shares, so just share your transaction data with us, we will then compare your transaction data against settlement information out there. And if you are entitled to a share in a securities class action settlement, we will file that claim on your behalf and we will take a cut of the money and we'll pass the rest on to you. And there are now a lot of these third-party filers that cropped up in the wake of 
Jim Cox and Randall Thomas's study. So companies, so ISS actually is a big third-party filer. Companies like Batea, Financial Recovery Services, there are a number of companies that have seen that this is frankly a pretty lucrative space. Has, have those companies solved the problem? My instinct is no, but I'll be fully candid and say we actually have no data on these third-party filers. So, for example, what percentage of claims are these third-party filers filing? We don't know. What percentage of overall claims? You know, again, because we don't actually have a universe of class members, we never know what percentage of class members are getting a share of the settlement. We still don't know that with the third-party filers. And I think we can assume, although again, we just don't have the data to know this, I think we can assume that the investors who are taking advantage, who are actually you know, using these third-party claims filer services are the larger institutional investors. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know about any individual who has partnered with a third-party filer to monitor their investments in these ways. There may be some very high-wealth individuals who do that, but run-of-the-mill retail investors are still being left out of this system. It's really only, I think, at the top that we've really seen the big changes. And even still, even for those large institutional investors who you know are managing my retirement and probably yours, these third-party filers are taking a cut off the top. They're, they're taking you know some percentage. We don't know exactly what percentage. I have heard people speculate that it's somewhere between 15 and 25% of the settlement fund in terms of what each individual investor gets. I don't know whether that's true or not. But you can see that by the time, let's imagine we have a $10 million settlement, perhaps 2.5 million of it's going to go to the attorneys. And then we're going to give off some additional percentage of at least individual investors' recoveries, those who have engaged with third-party files. They're going to lose another, let's even just say 15%. That's a lot that's going into the transaction costs in these lawsuits. So if our goal is really to get money into the hands of shareholders, I'm not sure that relying on third-party filers is the best way to do that. Right. There, there might be some more efficient approaches, and I'd like to maybe touch on those in just a minute. But I think it's such an interesting story that a, a law review article spurred the creation of a, a whole new sub-industry. Uh, and that's kind of a, an interesting story and probably not the case for all law review articles, but it's neat to see nonetheless. It sure is. We matter, right? We may not always think we matter. At least they matter. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's a shame that uh, Jim Cox and uh, Randall Thomas didn't get a head start on the industry. I know. uh, (laughs) um, I know. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they've received some sort of royalty or, or something like that from the industry. But. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so the the main contribution of this paper is discussing two approaches for addressing this problem, for reducing some of those transaction costs. And I'd like to take them uh, maybe one by one. Uh, the first that you note, uh, and it seems maybe a little bit more feasible as you describe it in the paper, is automating the claims administration process. What is that approach? How would it work? Why would it be better than what we do now? And what are some of the challenges to being able to move to that? And then I'd maybe like to take separately the other proposal that you have, which is more of a a regulatory-based approach. Sure, sure. So as you mentioned, I have two proposals in my paper, one that relies on what I call a market innovation and one that relies on a regulatory innovation. So taking the market-based approach first, basically, I look at the current process of claims administration and ask how we might improve it through the private markets. So what happens now, which I alluded to earlier, but I'll be a little bit more precise here now. What happens now is that 
the claims administrator basically asks every major bank and brokerage firm in the country, of which there are about 900, depending, and by the way, there's radically different counts here, but let's just say 900. It asks each one of them, do you have any customers who bought or sold this company's securities during the class period? And a bank and broker, these banks and brokers are actually ordered by the court to participate in that process. So part of every settlement order in all of these cases, an order from the court to the banks and brokers saying, you have to say if you have customers who bought or sold securities during this time period. And so the banks and brokers will write back to the claims administrator and say, yes, here is a list of our customers along with their names and addresses who bought or sold securities. No transaction data, just their names and contact information. Or alternatively, the banks and brokers could say, I'm not going to give you the names and addresses, but I'll tell you that we have 1,500 customers who fit that description. What will happen then is that the claims administrator, if they've gotten the actual names and addresses of the customers, they will go ahead and send claims forms to all of those people. Alternatively, if the bank or broker has said, we're not going to give you that information, but we have 1,500 customers who fit your description, the claims administrator will send 1,500 claims forms to that bank or broker. And the bank or broker will then pass it along to their customers. So what happens is sort of it, we go through the banks and brokers, and eventually the claims form makes it to the customer. And at that point, the customer is supposed to fill it out, detail their transaction data, right? How many shares did you buy? What dates? How much did it cost? And mail that claims form back into the claims administrator. But that's the place in the process where it all goes wrong, right? Because most customers just don't send back in the form. Well, what's weird about that is that actually the banks and brokers have all of the data that we're asking the customers for. The banks and brokers know not only which of their customers purchased the company's stock during the class period, but they know the dates, they know the prices, right? They know the number of shares. The banks and brokers have all of the information that we're right now asking the customers for. So my proposal is simply for claims administrators to get that data directly from banks and brokers, rather than going through the banks and brokers down to customers where we know that the system falls apart. And you know, I think a lot of people have said, well, why on earth would the banks and brokers turn over this data? I think the answer has to be because the courts require them to. In the same way right now, banks and brokers are ordered to, you know, essentially cooperate with the claims administration process, either by turning over names and addresses or by passing along the claims forms to their customers. I would modify that portion of settlement orders to say, essentially, banks and brokers, you actually have to turn over transaction data of your customers who fit the definition of a class member. And this may sound a little bit weird, but actually it's an approach that the SEC has used. So I don't know how often the SEC has used this approach, um, but they've certainly used it on at least a few occasions. I found an order going back a while now, but where Larry Hammermesh, who a lot of us know and love, he, he's a law professor, was at Widener, um, although I think he's since retired, but he actually ran a claims distribution process for the SEC many years ago where he used this approach. I talked to him about it. He, he basically said, sure, this is possible, right? No problem. Uh, you know, obviously it's, it's a little more complicated, but it can entirely be done and we've done it before. So this is a process that 
works very similar to the way that we do it now, but we remove several big points of failure along the way, which should help us make things more efficient with claims administration. And then the second proposal or approach that you suggest is more regulatory-based. How does that work? Uses some big data innovations that the SEC is working on, but uh, how could it be used? Uh, why might it be a little bit better? And, and what are some of the, the challenges or barriers to, to using this approach? Sure. So my other approach relies entirely on the SEC. So remember that this whole problem occurs because we don't have a database that identifies all the people or institutions that bought or sold shares in a given company securities during the class period, right? That database just doesn't exist. What's well, about to exist? The SEC is in the process of partnering on a giant database that will include data on every single, basically, securities purchase in the country. And this is in the works. It's been in the works for a long time, but it's called the Consolidated Audit Trail. And this will, it will include, I kid you not, about 58 billion records every day. It will include orders, executions, quote life cycles for equities markets, options markets, and it will include that information all the way down to the beneficial owner level. So we won't just know what banks or brokers executed the trades. We will actually know on whose behalf those trades were executed down to potentially social security numbers, employer identification numbers. I will be the first to say that there are some hurdles here. The consolidated audit trail has been in the works now for several years. The banks and brokerage firms are fighting it every step of the way. They are very nervous about the SEC having this type of granular transaction data. I can understand that nervousness. And even though it was supposed to be up and running last fall, it still has not gotten off the ground. So there's some hurdles here. And certainly right now, the plan is not to allow anyone access to this data other than basically government enforcement agencies. This is supposed to be used to catch insider trading, understand more about the markets, understand the dark web a little bit more. I mean, the goals here are enforcement goals. The SEC is not contemplating using the consolidated audit trail in private litigation. And I've talked to them briefly about this proposal. They would prefer not to use this data for private litigation purposes. But I do think it, you know, the data will exist very shortly to automate the system. We could, using this database, get settlement funds into the hands of every single class member, right? We would take all the problems out of the system because all the data we need will be in that spreadsheet. So to, to have a, a mega spreadsheet like this uh, obviously has a, a lot of applications, and this is one, and we can imagine that there will be a lot of uh, law professors and finance uh, <laughs> academics sort of pounding at the door of the, the SEC to get some access to, to these data. So that'll be exciting to see. And one imagines that that might happen sometime down the road, but you can imagine why banks or, or brokers might be especially skittish about that. So what potential extensions would some of these approaches have for uh, other class actions? You, you noted at the beginning of the conversation that some of these de facto opt-in issues exist in other contexts? And what might we be able to do with some of this learning in other contexts outside of the securities world? Yeah, so essentially, we have two types of class actions right now, even just looking at opt-out class actions. In some 
types of class actions, this whole problem that I've identified around identifying class members just isn't an issue. So, for example, if we have an employment class action where a group of employees are suing their former employer for some reason, the employer knows who worked for them, right? They know the dates that they worked. They know their salary, et cetera. Same thing. I I received yesterday a coupon from Zappos. Apparently, I was one of the people in the Zappos class action. Zappos knows who their former customers are. They know, at least for most of them, how to reach them because they have our email addresses. For those types of class actions, we don't really have a problem identifying class members. But there are plenty of class actions where we simply don't know who the class members are. So, for example, um, if many of us, you know, for example, there's a class action against Target involving everyone who purchased products at Target during a given time period. Perhaps if we purchase something at Target through a credit card, they have a record of us. But if I used cash, there's no way Target knows I was there. In some ways, we may never escape that problem, right? I'm not sure that there's any amount of automation or data that will, that will identify if I purchase something at Target with cash. But I think what I am sort of pressing us to do, and I'll say that this is something that civil procedure scholars more generally are looking at. I don't want to claim to be the only one in this area, but are urging us when it comes to identifying class members to use the technology and data that is out there as best we can. I think we can get into ruts in terms of how these processes work. We've been using paper forms for a long time, and nobody stops to say, wait a minute, is there a better way we might do this? I think what I'm saying is, let's look at these areas where right now we're forcing class members to identify themselves and say, is there a better way? Is there now, I mean, given that Google and Facebook know everything that I do, everything you do, is there a way to use some of that data to actually help consumers? What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation or readers to have from the article? Or do you see any open questions that that the article has that might be addressed in, in the future work? I mean, what I will say is I think the common objections that people often raise to this paper, and I'll just sort of give a little bit of airing to them. I think I've certainly had people say, does any of this matter? If institutional investors or retail investors aren't claiming their share of the settlement, why should we claim it for them, right? If they don't care enough, why should we care? And the reality is, I want to be clear here. I mean, the amount of money that we're talking about by the time you actually give each shareholder their pro rata share of the settlement, it can be fairly small amounts of money, right? Nobody's going to fund their retirement with the money that we're talking about here, most likely. But my response has always been that you know, essentially, number one, this is a fair amount of money. We're talking about $6 billion a year that we distribute through these settlements. So it's not chump change. And as much as deterrence will always be the dominant rationale for these lawsuits, we care about the compensatory side as well. If we truly didn't care about the compensation side, we wouldn't go through the claims administration process at all. We just take all the settlement money and give it to I don't know, the federal government, or give it to an investor rights group or something. We go through all these hurdles to get money back to consumers. Let's at least streamline that process and do a better job of it. And I think the other objection that a lot of people have is, whoa, 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 what about hacking? What about data security? Do we really want claims administrators to have this much data? Is that really a good idea? And I would have two answers to that. Number one is to concede that this is a data security risk. I I mean, I won't pretend that it's not. Certainly what we're envisioning here is giving claims administrators very sensitive financial information about class members, and we should be cautious before we do that. 
we should not be turning over this data to claims administrators who do not have very robust data security guidelines and protocols. No question about that. I'm not the right person to design those guidelines and protocols, um, but I can certainly agree that we should be looking hard at that. On the flip side, I think we need to remember that these claims administrators have a lot of this data already. If we don't think we should trust claims administrators with sensitive financial data, then we shouldn't give them anything. This, what I'm proposing to give claims administrators is not different data than what they have now. Same exact type of data, just more of it. So if we truly have a data security problem, we have it with the very premise of how we have set up these processes, not with what I'm proposing to do. I, I will tell you that for me, the most fun part of this paper has been essentially looking at this problem through a process improvement lens. I think it's been really interesting to look at a series of steps that we use in claims administration and essentially to say, where does the problems occur, right? If two-thirds of investors aren't getting their money in securities class actions, and it actually may be higher for retail investors, why not? We have 10 different steps in this settlement claims administration process. Where does it go wrong? And that's just a question that I think, I don't know, for legal scholars who haven't delved into the process improvement world, I think it's a kind of neat way to think about how we approach legal problems and how we might actually kind of improve things down on the ground. Our guest today has been Jessica Erickson, professor of law at the University of Richmond. We've discussed her recent article, Automating Settlements in Corporate Litigation, which is forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Jessica, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.